This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 44 for February 2014. Your hosts, as usual, are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. And our topic for this episode is Wall Street, the 1987 Oliver Stone film starring Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas. And I believe he won the Academy Award in the Academy Award winning role as Gordon Gecko. This is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you haven't seen Wall Street or the 2010 sequel, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, or the 2013 totally unrelated Martin Scorsese Helm, The Wolf of Wall Street, go watch it now or listen to one of the other excellent podcasts on Film Geek Radio. Todd, even though it's not a spoiler-free podcast, on the off chance that anyone could be listening to this who hasn't seen Wall Street recently, can you give us a quick plot synopsis? Sure. In, in some ways, it, it, it's kind of one of those classic tales. We, we begin with Bud, who is a young up-and-coming stockbroker who's starts off in the kind of the bullpen of this brokerage making cold calls. Worst and most horrible job in any stockbrokership, I imagine. His father is a blue-collar worker at an airline who can't really understand what his son is doing with all of these suits in New York City. But as the film progresses, our young, ambitious protagonist worms his way into the good graces of Gordon Gecko, the most successful person well, in the film, really, hyper-successful guy. And we then kind of get the story of Bud rising and becoming more and more successful, richer and richer and richer, selling his soul to the devil, and coming to a, a moment where he realizes that his father's business is going to be destroyed because of his own actions, uh, because of Bud's actions. And... He also then gets caught by the SEC for doing all of the things that Gordon taught him to do. And there's a nice climax where Gecko gets his comeuppance and Bud gets arrested. And we end with him going into, well, the sunset. And yet the sunset is setting on the courthouse. So we make of that what we will. So typical rise and fall kind of structure. Rise and fall kind of structure, um, definitely. All right. The only... The only part of your summary I'm going to take slight issue with was sell his soul to the devil. I think typical to call this a, a Faustian kind of story, and yet... Did he have well, a soul to sell? Well, no, actually what I was going to say is I insisted in pre-production and I'll insist now that this was not a seduction story. This was not selling your soul to the devil so much as running after the devil, say. Oh, take my soul, please. What can I give you to, to take my soul? I, I've got this soul. Won't you please take my soul? You, you know, uh, I'll work for you for so long if you'll just do the honor of taking my soul instead of somebody else's soul. There is that in terms of 
I think one of the things we're going to talk about in just a second is who is the film's moral avatar? Uh, what is the film's moral point of view? And I think it can be convenient for us as an audience, as well as Bud as a character, to sort of slough off any moral accountability onto Gordon Gecko and say, oh, yeah. you know, well, yeah, I did wrong, but I was seduced. The devil is an, an expert liar or, or trickster. And I think one of the things that stood out to me in a reviewing is that Gecko doesn't have to seduce Bud. Bud is, is, no. Bud is, is ripe for the picking. And in, in fact, I hadn't thought about this during pre-production. Uh, but one of the film's mantras, particularly while Bud is working for Gecko, whenever anyone complains about these takeovers, is, well, if it wasn't Gecko, it would have been somebody else. You right. know, when his dad complains about taking over the airlines, Gecko doesn't do it, someone else is going to do it. And if it wasn't Bud, somebody else, some young guy uh, would have come along. Well, I, I was going to say, from a, from a moral standpoint, as well as a financial standpoint, that that language echoes back to Bud, that if it wasn't Gecko who someone corrupted else. you, someone else was going to corrupt you because you were corruptible. I mean, that's a, a riff on the, one of the key scenes in the film where Bud asks Gordon Gecko why he wrecked the company, Blue Star Airlines, his dad's airline. And Gordon says, because it was wreckable. Right. You know, so uh, why did Gecko corrupt you? Because you were corruptible. And we look at this from a thin place perspective, you know, perhaps as we talk about the moral center, right. you know, isn't that in essence the message of scripture? Humanity is fallen. Humanity is corruptible. The, the heart is despicable. Um, and we don't like to see that. We don't like to talk about it that way. And yet here we have this story where, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think there's much argument against that position that that Bud was ripe for the picking. And, but aren't we all? Yes. And, and which comes back, you know, my feeling through the first part of the film was on the one hand, I, I don't feel terribly judgmental against Bud because I don't know, maybe I, I, I do see myself a little bit there in the sense of, you know, you see someone who's really successful and I want that. And you find yourself little by little. And again, this is one of those, story, you know, kind of like the Godfather, of doing small little things to go along the way to get the approval to do be successful, and all of a sudden you find yourself totally out of your depth. Yeah, although, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the Godfather. I thought about that structurally. There is that gradual moral, I mean, one of the things it has in common with the Godfather, which I think is a much better movie, yes. is it has that inverse structure of moral decline overlaid over financial or material success. Uh, ironically, one of the ways in which I think they're very different is that in The Godfather, Michael Corleone's moral reservations are actually much stronger than our buds, it yeah. seems to me. That Michael, I mean, Michael's initial entry into the family business is avenging someone who tried to shoot his father. Yes. And while I don't, or avenging his father from someone who tried to shoot him and kill him, and while I don't condone that, it's a little bit easier to understand 
and accept to sort of say, I don't want anything to do about this, but I'm going to compromise mm-hmm. in this one area of my belief systems, then it's almost as though Bud doesn't know that that's a compromise until he does it. And when he does, it's more of a speed bump along, mm-hmm. along the road. I had asked you beforehand whether you had seen The Wolf of Wall Street, and you said you had not. And not one yet, of the no. reasons I wanted to watch this film is because The Wolf of Wall Street's been getting a lot of comparison, uh, particularly, or a lot of chatter, particularly about whether or not where its moral center is, whether or not Scorsese is indicting or reveling in the excesses of the main stockbroker character. And one of the differences that I see is that as we go along in retrospect, there's almost no more reservation whatsoever in the Jordan Belfort character of the Wolf of Wall Street. It's, it's like the big stop signs or warning signs that are the law are don't even make him pump its brakes. Whereas I think in, in Bud, Fox, and Wall Street, there is a marginal awareness of, oh, I just ran a stop sign, you know, or I just ran a stoplight. And I think in Michael Corleone, metaphorically, there's more along the lines of, I stopped at the stop sign, or I've been stopping at the stop signs, uh, but while I was stopped at the stop sign, something happened, and I I, I made a decision to run it thinking I'm not just going to change totally my behavior. And so... Uh, I think those three films, The Godfather in the early 70s, Wall Street in the 80s, The Wolf of Wall Street in you know, 2013, show us a cultural or a societal deterioration in terms of not necessarily people's willingness to break the law, but the ease with the which, ease with which they, they do that, do that yeah. because there's almost a, a lack of a social conscience to be violated or to make you hang back or to make you be, you know, intimidated by that. Now, not, not having seen Wolf of Wall Street, one of the scenes in Wall Street, the Oliver Stone film that I find, I found striking was at kind of at the, the peak of Bud's um, success. Um, he's got this penthouse apartment. He's got the girl. He's got the fancy schmancy decorations. Um, and all this, and he, he steps out onto the balcony at night, and he looks very troubled, and he just kind of asks the universe, who am I? Uh, there there's, does seem to be this real sense of, I've got everything I've ever wanted, and I still don't know who I am. And I don't know if we, you know, in The Godfather, there's several places where we see a struggle with identity. You know, is this who I am? And then Kind of once Michael said, yeah, this is who I am, he goes forward. But do we see anything like that in the, in the Wolf of Wall Street? You know, that thought of, I'm a person, who am I? No, not, not really. I mean, I guess I should say as a slight detour, I'm in the category of people who was not particularly impressed with the Wolf uh-huh. of Wall Street. Uh, I was not, my objections to The Wolf of Wall Street were not moral like some of my compatriots either in the sense of, oh, it shows nude bodies and mm-hmm. nude behavior or excessive behavior, uh, nor is it moral in the sense of I, that I think it celebrates or invites us to celebrate 
in this sort of behavior. I just found it to be one note and rather boring. Not a whole lot of, of nuance in there. And any emotion, even if it's discussed over three hours, can be painted really well. And disgusting behavior can be painted really well and you can be disgusted by it. But don't misunderstand this little comparison. But I mean, I don't know that there's a whole lot of three-hour porno movies or something like that. If it's just doing one thing, sure. then, you know, after 30 minutes of that, you are you want some kind of nuance or something. So else. perhaps in addition to the, the the characters blowing through stop signs without even breaking, they're not even, you know, the characters don't seem to be thinking about themselves at all. Yeah, and and so really, I mean, the fall seems inevitable. And there's not a whole lot to do but to wait for it. I suppose there is some satire or a little bit more comedy in The Wolf of Wall Street, but there's about a five to ten minute scene in the middle of the film where Jordan Belfort, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, takes quaaludes and then has to crawl from the payphone that he's been to his car and is not really in control of his body and is trying to crawl to his car and roll down the mm. stairs and crawl into the car. And I just kept thinking, you know, if this were Jim Carrey instead of Leonardo DiCaprio, or in a Fairly Brothers movie instead of a Mark Scorsese movie, everyone would say, this is ridiculously stupid. <laughs> but because it's got because it's got the pedigree that it does, I think some people saw more in it than than, than I saw. Just, I'm, I'm thinking there's this interesting trajectory that we seem to be with these three films and I'm just in terms of even just having characters do any sort of thinking about who they are. Yeah. Although, I mean, I suppose if we want to go down that, that rabbit hole of comparison to the Wolf of Wall Street, it's worth noting that the Wolf of Wall Street, while being a 2013 film is set in the 1980s. Right. And so if there is differences in behavior, it's the differences. It's not just like we as a society have changed in what we're willing to do. Mm -hmm. Jordan Belfort and Martin Scorsese are sort of saying these sorts of wild excesses are going on. It's either in how we feel about them or how we're willing to represent them. You had mentioned the greed is good speech, which yeah. if you know anything about Wall Street, you know that speech that pretty much won Michael Douglas the Oscar, and it's about a two-and-a-half-minute speech. And today, stylistically, you're in comparison to The Wolf of Wall Street and, you know, it's cocaine and some of its ex sexual exploit. It doesn't look it. I mean, the greatest good speech is a lot of things that you can judge more or It doesn't look at all shocking. It, it's no. not shocking to the sensibilities. It's not even. It's not even loud. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that, that struck me on rewatching this film, I saw it years and years and years ago, and over time, that speech, the greatest good speech, I think, has grown in my mind, and then also I think in the popular imagination. I've got, I had this picture in my head of Michael Douglas, you know, shouting, you know, triumphantly, green mm -hmm. is good. Yeah, that's not how it's delivered. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very measured speech. And yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's well, not even so loud and, and it, it's, it's 
really help allows you to focus on the argument rather than the emotion. Yeah, you 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 you're right out ahead of me in terms of thinking about that comparison. I mean, uh, one of the things that I want to talk about is the notion of complicity, whether we as an audience are compromised mm-hmm. or complicit in either film's celebration of or depiction of some of these excesses. And while the excesses in The Wolf of Wall Street are more excessive, I think in some ways that is actually easier to reject or not take seriously because they're so much more over the top right. that they're easier to dismiss as being not real or to tip our brains in there that to say, oh, better not pretend that I'm seduced by that. And when I say unreal, I mean that in a stylized way. I, I have no doubt that there's a certain amount of verisimilitude in The Wolf of Wall Street that Jordan Belfort probably did hire midgets and throw them at an office party or, you know, right. have that much cocaine or take quaaludes. Uh, so I'm not talking about excessive in terms of or unrealistic in the sense of that it's not realistic that that could have happened. Right. Uh, but I'm talking about the openness or the brazenness uh, of how it's depicted and how it's stylized that's a little bit over the top. Whereas it's interesting to me that in your memory, you're remembering Gordon Gekko's speech as being foaming at the mouth. Yes. And it's not. It's actually relatively tame. It's the yeah. idea itself that in retrospect we find damaging. And there's actually a part of me that likes that or respects that more because there's plenty of problems with the Oliver Stone's script. But at least as a liberal and as an idealist, he seems to be saying the danger lies in this idea, not in these uber characters who are going to seduce us or who are able to dismiss as being somehow or another not like us. And I, and I think that's true for Gecko's character throughout the film. He's constantly explaining things to Bud and teaching him. I mean, in fact, one of the things that he gets really upset with at the end of the film is that, you know, is I taught you everything. And we actually see that teaching, that explanation. This is how the system works and laying it out. And, you know, in some ways, a lot of exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is how the system works. This is how the game is played. Um, and, and again, it, it's, it's not done in an over the top sort of way. It, it, you know, it's pretty calm. And then, you know, then we see it being carried out. Um, and I think, that in terms of Oliver Stone, it's these ideas that are what's damaging. Right. Well, I think trying to tie that or extend that to the idea of who is the mirror for us or the avatar for us in, in either of these films. One of the things that strikes me about Gordon Gecko's character is I think he's more recognizable to us as a human being and not as a larger-than-life figure. And I think this is particularly stressed in the way in which Bud feels early on, and is somewhat confirmed at the end, that 
Gecko is not a Saban. He's not doing anything that Bud couldn't do. Right. He's not doing anyone that anyone couldn't do. He is simply in a position to take advantage of Bud's desire to get up, to transfer information. Um, I mean, I guess he can do a few things that the Hal Holbrook character is not willing to do because he's willing to bend the rules. But it's not like he's – we're all willing to bend the rules somewhat or enough to justify it, but we're perhaps not willing to totally disregard them a la Jordan Belfort. Uh, Gordon Gecko makes a big point to Bud at one speech that he, Gordon, is from City College and not from the Ivy Leagues. And so it's not as though he has gotten what he has gotten because he's this savant. Uh, he, privileged. He makes another speech in which he says the real wealth in this country, you know, a lot of it is, most of it's from inheritance. And uh, I forget what the other one was, but that his own net worth, while big to Bud, Bud is small relative to who owns power and inheritance. Uh, his, Gordon Gecko's, own situation is contrasted with the Terrence Stamp character, Sir, whatever it is, the British yeah, guy. Sir who, spends a lot. Who, who says, Sir spends a lot. Uh, who says at one point in the beginning, I could break you, Gordon. You know, I could sell all my stock just to break you. Uh, I don't want to do it because that would hurt the company. So I'm going to deal with you. And Gecko seems to treat that as a valid Yes, threat. Gecko says to Buddy, he could. When Gecko says to Bud, I've taught you everything that, that, you know, I've taught you all of these moves, Bud outplays him at the end. And so that there seems to be this instance in which it, it is the Wall Street film seems to be saying that it's not, there's not any kind of special skill or talent in uh, Gecko, there's simply a willingness to disregard guard the rules and nothing well, else. Or that, well, you know that that anyone could do what Gecko does. It's just simply a matter of will, not yeah. of talent or learning or scheduling sure. circumstances. When when Gordon is kind of making his first the hard sell to Bud to really sell out and go with him. You know, he says, I, I, I'm looking for someone who's poor, smart, and has no feelings. And, you know, it, it, and throughout the film, there's other places where Gecko, you know, basically says, you can't get emotional about stocks or about deals. Now, several points, it's, he's clearly emotional, but that seems to be his motto. And I think that's what we're getting at here is, it's not, you know, it, it's the will, it's, I have no feelings about who I'm hurting, what's going on, it's because it's about me. And so, you know, poor, so he's driven, smart, you gotta have a certain amount of smarts, and then no feelings. And that, that would be there. And in, and in the end, that's what Bud kind of uses to outplay him. I mean, he, he gets Gecko emotional. Although Bud does have, you know, he does. feelings. And I think that's one of the realities, too. You know, Gecko says no feelings, but even he himself. You know, even before the big comeuppance, right. we see him, you know, exploding with anger at various underlings and whatnot if something doesn't go right. Now the film is dedicated to Lewis Stone, uh, which my use of Google has identified as Oliver Stone's father, and the film's dedication specifically says to Lewis Stone, 
a stockbroker. Right. So, uh, in terms of the question of who, where is the film's moral center lies, Bud may be the audience avatar or perhaps the avatar of Oliver Stone himself, if you want to do autobiographical criticism. I think that if the film is dedicated to his father, there's there's two characters that are in contrast to Gecko. One is the father of the film, played by Martin Sheen, who is the airline mechanic. The other is the senior stockbroker, played by Hal Holbrook, Lou, Lou, who consistently refuses to use any of the insider tips, uh, who gives Bud advice, uh, who takes Bud aside when he knows Bud is about to be arrested and Bud doesn't, and says, when a man looks into the abyss and sees nothing looking after him, that's when he finds his character, or that's, you know, what he does next. That's what keeps him from falling into the abyss. Right. I found that to be dissatisfying to me. One of the things I found dissatisfying about Wall Street as a whole is that the ending seems to me to be somewhat muddled or confused, perhaps because this father figure gets split off into these two different yeah. characters, but also because I think in some ways Bud is let off the hook a little bit too much in the film, that it becomes easy to put Gecko as this seductive character or, or this evil character or whatever. Uh, but then if you think about Lou's speech, there's this element of, okay, now that you've been caught, your character is going to be revealed. Well, is it your character revealed in all of the illegal things that you did to get caught? There's a scene after he's arrested where he's driving with dad and mom to the courthouse, ostensibly to be sentenced and to be put into jail, in which... Mom says, you saved the company, well, at least you saved the airline company, and Dad says... And you gave the money back. You gave the money back, and you told the truth eventually, so you did some bad, but, you, you know, he says, I think you're shooting par. And I'm like, huh? You know, both, both from a sense of that coming from the character, who spent the first 20 minutes of the movie saying, when are you going to do something real? Yeah. You know, you're chasing after all of this. The only, the only pushback I might have there is the 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 tone and affect of the delivery of that line to me makes it a little... I mean, he says, yeah, you're shooting... I guess you're shooting par. It seemed a little... I don't know. It didn't seem to be, to me, to be a full, fully felt sort of you're doing all right. But, I don't know, it, it, that, that I think could be a subtle interpretation. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I could also push back and say it's a father yeah. talking to his son, and you know what's the father going to say? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I told you so, or or whatnot. He doesn't seem all that sympathetic about the. I mean, when when Bud he, says he I'm does. I'm, I'm going to go to jail, he's like, yeah, that's going to be hard, you know. And <laughs> or he, he actually says in the roundabout way that might be the best thing for you. Yeah. So. I, I mean, I get that. I don't. Maybe the father is being gentler. There is that bit of pastoral wisdom that you know I learned in church that always said you 
you comfort the afflicted and you afflict the comfortable. So when God is comfortable, he's afflicting him. And when he's afflicted, you try to comfort him. But I do think that Oliver Stone as a writer, to the extent that, that, you know, if Bud is an avatar, the film bends too much to try to make Bud into, to try to make the movie into a cautionary tale. Yeah. In terms of, it could have been a lot worse. You looked into the abyss as opposed to you fell into the abyss. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe that's part of why I think both morally as well as artistically The Godfather is a better movie is because Michael falls into the abyss. You know, Michael thinks he's only looking into the abyss, but then he can get to the lip of the abyss without falling in. And they pull him back in. Well, and then, I mean, that's the whole tragedy of The, the Godfather right. is that he then spends, you know, two more movies trying to get out or thinking right. that he can get out. I mean, I would be willing to concede a little bit of hope at the end of Wall Street to sort of say, okay, it's going to be a long, hard road, longer and harder because of the choices that you've made, but you've taken the first step towards climbing out of the abyss. Right. But that's a little bit different towards you went right up to the very cliff, and fortunately you fell back just in time, and so you know, you're going to have to do two years in prison, but or however long it is right. in prison. But you came to your senses, or or maybe if you did fall in, getting out was just one step of of turning around. And I yeah. think you know to bring in the Christian language of the thin place or whatnot that repentance does literally mean to turn. Yeah, you know. So I mean, repentance is a turn, but most anyone who's lived a Christian life will know that at that point of turning. You're not out. You're, you have to do the backtracking. Yeah. The train just points you in the right direction. It doesn't get you the out train, of wherever it is that you yeah. are. The repentance is the necessary first step. Well, it's not even the first step. It's, it's the necessary turning right. so that when you take the first step, you're going the right in way. the right direction. Yeah. And, and, you know, perhaps that's one of the questions, you know, that the film raises is, you know, talk about character and the morality. And yeah, I mean, but, did a whole series of bad things to get to this this point. Is is the character good because of he realized, oh, I screwed up and I'm gonna change it? Or is there something about the character that you wouldn't have gotten here? You wouldn't have arrived at this place without having a total lack of character. Yeah. Um, and I guess you know, where are we gonna focus or where where do we think the film is focused? I guess is the question. Right. And it's important for me to say, I've said this before, but I, but I really want to underline it. Bud does, I was thinking when you said Bud does a lot of bad things, what's the worst thing that Bud does? You know, there's the insider trading, there's uh, betrayal of his father's trust or his company. Uh, but that I, Bud doesn't do anything for Gordon or at Gordon's behest that he hasn't already done. On his own, the majority sure. of stuff that that Bud does, Bud chooses to do. You know, going back to that first speech where he uses the insider information about the airline to get into Gecko's good graces, and so maybe there is something Faustian about that. You know, from a Christian perspective or a moral perspective, um, if you think about 
Gecko's character as being a devil figure, you know, uh, yeah, the devil is a seducer and a liar too, but, uh, sometimes it's not really a matter of the devil chasing after you and you know what to do is the devil being ever at hand. And if you're willing to make compromises or whatnot, he'll find things to put in your path or it's a lot easier to put temptations or incentives in someone's path and let them walk their own way down a path rather yeah. than to pull them down a path. And, yeah, and certainly the film, I think one of the things the film does do is, yes, shows us Bud's, you know, predilections before he meets Gecko. Mm-hmm. In many ways, Gecko, I think, is just magnifying because he, he gives him access to certain funds and certain ways of doing it. I mean, he really kind of, Here's the logical conclusion, the magnification of what you already were. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not, he's not giving, inciting him to do things he wouldn't have done before. I think you're right, you know, about that. Um, you know, that way of being tempted by, I'm thinking right now of when Satan tempted Jesus, you know, he didn't create temptations that were totally out of character. They were aimed at certain aspects of who Jesus was and what he could do and just say, hey, do it for yourself. I mean, you're hungry. You can, hey, you can do miracles. You can turn stones into bread. Mm -hmm. Do it. Um, Do it more. Um, And I think, you know, maybe that's the way temptation works, you know, and at least in how this works. And, you know, maybe there is, you know, an interesting connection there. Yeah, and, and I think that may also be a connection in terms of why I find the film dissatisfying. I may be reading too much biographical criticism into it, but I know Oliver Stone is a liberal, and so there seems to me to be a reluctance to really indict Bud. Sure. And yet, a lot of the means or the arguments that Gecko uses to seduce Bod and to seduce us to the extent that we are seduced by Gecko, he's not always wrong. I mean, there is an indictment of the excesses of bureaucracy and capitalism. Uh, Gecko plays on some of his resentment, you know, on some of his class resentments in terms of inheritance and on being the outsider. But most of all, I think what Gecko plays on, both psychologically and literally, is the fact that the system is not a meritocracy in his view. It is a system that's designed to allow the have-nots to, you know, manipulate people, and it really matters which side of the door, sure. you know, that you are on. You got into the room. Can you know that you, you stay there? Up? to stay into the room matters a lot more than your character. And on some levels, I say this as a liberal, that's the liberal lie that Oliver Stone, I think, believes that too much to simply let that stand as a lie that Gecko told Bud in order to, you know, in order to manipulate him. There's, there's a part of Oliver Stone that I think believes half of what Gecko is is mm-hmm. trying to say. And, I mean, that's very scriptural in the sense of the devil likes to, 
in a screw tape way, mix a little bit of truth into every lie right. to make it more palatable and make it more justified. But I, I get the feeling like Stone is trying to want to do both, you know, want to see this as a individual personal moral failure and yet somehow still indict the system on a broad sociological level. And maybe in 1987, the American public is still not quite ready to indict the system until they see the excesses that Brian Scorsese is there to, you know. Or maybe, you know, this this was still a somewhat earlier Oliver Stone film. Maybe as a filmmaker, he hadn't figured out how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how to do both, to, yeah. you know, indict the system and indict the individual effectively. Right. Um, in terms of, as you point out, there are, there are several kind of, writing problems mm-hmm. in the script and you know maybe that's he's still early in his development oh and one of the big ones we talked about is that just at the end after bud sets up the this hostile takeover of the airline that uh, he walks back into his office apparently unaware that he's going to be arrested and his secretary says you know how are you today you know and he says, there's justice in the world. Uh, so he doesn't seem to be aware that, yeah, I've taken down Gecko, and that's, I mean, not in the sense of wearing a wire, that'll come later. Right. But in the sense of, I've beat him at his own game, but that I've done anything wrong. And I don't know that the film seems to be aware of that either. And no. it's like, the British guy is better than Gecko because he's not going to dismantle the company. He's going to allow the company but he's to still going to use all the methods. But he's still an insider trader. Yeah. He's still the, the technique that Bud uses with him is not any different. And so um, there seems to be this satisfaction in seeing Gecko defeated through his own techniques and yet there doesn't seem to be an awareness of that. Okay, are the, you know the people that I did this with? Are they any different? You know, are they right. different than that? So uh, that's part of what I'm talking about about this whole sort of like wanting to indict the system as opposed to just the character. And there seems to be these 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 two movies that never quite merge seamlessly for me. One of them being an individual person seduced by power and you know, has a last minute realization, you know, saves the soul as one going through fire, and one of them being a more broad sociological right. indictment, and those two films never quite mesh yeah. really well. I, I, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think I found the ending a little bit more satisfying than you, but not much. Alright, well, so, you know, overall, I'm not a big fan of the film. If you've never seen it, it may be worth watching as a performance piece. I mean, certainly Michael Michael Douglas is good. He won he won an Oscar overall. I mean, just as film, um, thumbs up, thumbs down. I, I think or, you know, well, as a time capsule, it's fantastic. You'd see people running around with these giant, huge cell phones and you know bragging about their two-inch black and white portable TVs. That you know, now my iPhone is far more fun than that. I think you know. It, this is one of those films I, w- I would definitely put as a really good discussion-starting film. Um, you know, there's lots of ideas. There's lots to talk about our economic system and what it means. I think there's things to talk about in terms of our compl- 
simplicity with those things. Um, so you're kind of looking for those, one of those kind of films where you show a group and then you talk about it afterwards. I think this film works really well for that. And if that group is a church group for those people yeah. you want to talk to, our church-minded people, then it's probably still an R-rated movie. But it is an R-rated movie. But you're, uh, you may be able to stay in your church yeah. if you show them Wall Street as opposed to The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. Yeah, there are a couple of spots you might need to fast forward, but all right, but only a couple, not the entire film. Thank, thank you, Todd. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have comments about this episode or suggestions for other movies you would like to hear us gab about, drop us a line at the thin place at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield, or read my reviews at the number one more filmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.